We return this morning to our series on how to be banished to an island of spiritual infancy. And actually, today we are looking at the second part of a study on Satan's strategy for the church. In a few minutes, we will be looking primarily at Matthew chapter 16. But we have some other texts that we will look at first. When Christ died on the cross, we know that God conquered death, he conquered sin, and he conquered Satan. In fact, God has put Satan under our feet. In 1 John 4.4, we read, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And in this we rejoice. But we are also warned to put on the full armor of God in Ephesians 6 and verse 11, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. As you will recall in our former study, Satan is methodical. He is systematic. He is very careful in his plans to thwart the purposes of God. We know according to 2 Corinthians 4.4 that he blinds the minds of the unbelievers so that they are unable to see the gospel. He offers delicious poisons that appeal to the flesh of all men, seducing us to act in ways that seem right, but in the end bring only destruction and even death. And he especially targets those who belong to Christ. He tries to tempt us to rebel against God, and he relentlessly deceives us with what Paul calls doctrines of demons taught by false teachers. He wants to discourage us. He wants to defeat us. He wants our lives to dishonor Christ. He wants to distort the gospel in all of its purity and replace it with something that is false, that is counterfeit. These are all part of his very careful, cunning, diabolical plan. And sadly, few Christians take these things seriously. Therefore, it is easy for many believers to fall prey to his deceptions, especially with respect to the kind of church they attend. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church. And we know that Satan will also build his counterfeit church. And if you attend a church like that, you will never grow spiritually if you truly know Christ. And the hallmark of those kinds of churches will be shallow, man-centered, ear-tickling preaching. Cotton candy sermonettes. Therefore, the people will become spiritually malnourished. They will starve for the glory and the greatness of God. The church will fill up with tares. The church will manifest rampant sin. And for the most part, truth will be determined not by an accurate understanding of the word of God, but by experience or by some self-professed guru. People that live in these kinds of churches have lives that are filled with chaos and confusion until they finally become so disillusioned with the church that they quit. I know this to be true. I've seen it down through the years. A number of our listeners write in and describe these very things. You will recall in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11 that Paul was concerned for the church there at Corinth that Satan would not take advantage of them. And he warned them, saying that we are not ignorant of his schemes, literally his thoughts. The idea is that Satan plots in his mind to affect how we think. Later in chapter 11, beginning in verse 2, he says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I may present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. 
In other words, Satan will cause you to shift your loyalties from Christ to all manner of other things. And especially in the context of the church, it will be things like rituals or traditions, perhaps politics, social issues, um, experience, emotionalism, psychology, miracles, uh, Satan and demons, entertainment, numerical church growth, and all of those kinds of things. Later in verses 13 through 14, he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Now, in part one of this series, we examined how Satan deceived Eve by his craftiness. And may I remind you of how this works in the church in terms of his strategy to build and bless his kind of church. We learn that he approaches those who are alone, those who are vulnerable, and he has one purpose, and that is to deceive them. To deceive them in two areas. To deceive them in their understanding of the character of God, as well as their understanding of the word of God. He will fill them with lies. He will cause people to question and reject the authority of the word of God, especially commands that God gives his people, including his design for the roles of men and women in family and in the church. Satan's emissaries will be winsome. They will be caring. They will be knowledgeable. Many times they will know error better than you know truth. Like their father, the devil, they will appear as an angel of light. Jesus called them wolves in sheep's clothing. In other words, they dress up like a shepherd. But in reality, they are a wolf. Even as Satan refused to acknowledge the sovereignty of God, when he deceived Eve, he will raise up church leaders that will do the same. And churches that resent the doctrine of God's sovereignty. His church will seduce people into doubting God's goodness and even cause them to question the fairness of his will, just like he did with Eve. He will persuade folks to believe there exists a better way, a way that will bring more satisfaction to you because God is too harsh and restrictive. He will cause people to think they need to choose freedom rather than bondage That the God of the Bible will hold you back and you need to be free to do your own thing, not his. And as he did with Eve, he will try and convince people that God really doesn't judge or condemn people for doing their own thing. That there's really no consequences to rebellion. And he will subtly raise up teachers that will come up within the church who will twist the word of God in order to confuse people, and then make the word say what they want it to say. He will insert clever, even compelling half-truths, always in an effort to distort the character of God, as well as to reinterpret the word of God. And he does this to animate our resentment of God, because we need to feel justified in our rebellion against him. He wants people to fall into a state of sin and be estranged from fellowship with God. He wants to confuse naive and undiscerning people with clever counterfeits, offering them alternative truths that appeal to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life. This is the same tactic, as you will recall, that he used with Jesus in the wilderness. Satan will build and bless a church with a philosophy of ministry that will always be man-centered, not God-centered. His pastors will promote a false gospel of self-esteem, self-fulfillment, self-will, and the focus of the entire church will basically be all about you and your needs, not God and his glory. 
Those leaders will lead people to believe that God exists for them rather than they exist for him. They will convince folks that God is not the final and benevolent authority to be obeyed, but that we need to think of our own ways that we need to pursue spirituality. And he will raise up and bless churches that reinforce these kinds of principles, churches that will ultimately exist to make you feel good about yourself. If you are a part of this kind of church, you will find that God will become smaller and smaller and you will become larger and larger. Your church's theology and worship, again, will be man-centered, not God-centered, and you will develop a low view of God and a high view of man. That church will be filled with phony Christians, and the few believers that are there will never mature in Christ, but will remain in spiritual infancy and not even know it. All of these things emerge from the craftiness of Satan and how he deceived Eve. Again, this is what Paul was so concerned about when he said, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Now, the best way to spot a counterfeit is to know the real thing and then compare the two. And the New Testament is filled with examples of what a true church looks like. But let's focus this morning on the first place in the New Testament where Jesus described the essential elements of the church that he promised to build. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. Here Jesus describes the church that he will build and bless based on foundational truths that are antithetical to the church Satan wants to build and bless. It's fascinating. As a pastor, I receive emails and mailers all the time inviting me to certain church growth seminars. And many times I will look at, at the things that they, that they teach and of course, there's various gurus that are out there that have learned how to do certain things to draw large crowds, and then they call it a church. But what I find fascinating is the things that we see emerging from this text and other texts in the Word of God are virtually never discussed in those seminars. There's a huge difference, dear friends, between a crowd and a church. One is an event that honors man. The other is a supernatural organism that honors God. It is the body of Christ. In Colossians 1, in verse 16, we learn that God created all things to bring glory unto himself. And all through Scripture, we read how that God is gathering unto himself an assembly of blood-bought saints the ecclesia, the called-out assembly, literally the church. And in Ephesians 5, verse 25, Paul says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then here in Matthew 16, and verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. My friends, this is a priority so exceedingly important that God has exalted Christ as the supreme authority over his church. We read this in Ephesians 1, verse 22. There he says, He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Because it is Christ who builds his church, Luke makes it clear that church growth comes from him, not from man. Luke 2.47, for example, we read, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So it is of paramount importance that we understand the nature, the, 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 the message, and the method of the church Christ has promised to build and bless. And here in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 28, we discover seven pillars of the church that Christ will build and bless. And we are going to 
contrast them with the one that Satan devises based on the schemes he used to deceive Eve, of which Paul warns. There are seven of them. I'll give them to you today, but we're only going to have time for the first one. The first will be Christ will bless a church that confesses Jesus as Lord. Secondly, that is devoted to Scripture alone. Number three, that is zealous for kingdom living. Number four, that celebrates the cross. Number five, that aggressively wars against Satan. Number six, that joyfully denies self to follow Christ and then finally lives in light of Christ's glorious return. Now, the New Testament offers many more uh, essentials as part of the church, but they all are built upon these foundational truths. Now, before we look more closely at the text, let me give you the context of Matthew 16. Many of the Jews, including the disciples during this time, were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. But they were becoming disillusioned with him. His popularity was beginning to wane. They were wondering, you know, if he's the Messiah, why doesn't he overthrow the Romans and establish the kingdom? What's happening here? And the twelve shared that frustration. They saw how they were moving rapidly toward a period of crisis and persecution if things didn't change. Now, of course, God's plan was right on time. And Jesus now is going to explain to them how his plan included something very different than what they understood. You see, they did not understand that the immediate establishment of the kingdom on earth was contingent upon Israel's attitude toward her messianic king. For it was to that nation that all of the promises and covenants belong. Romans 9, 4, for example, speaks of that. And that is certainly still true to this day. But Jesus knew that the nation would reject him. He knew that he was to be, according to Acts 2.23, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The disciples and the people didn't understand these things. So the inauguration of the glorious earthly kingdom was going to be postponed. And here our Lord encourages them by announcing to them the building of something new, a new thing, the church, a body of those that he has redeemed and in whom he has invested with with special authority in the future kingdom of heaven. He was going to explain to them that the Messiah King is preparing them for what we would call the interregnum. The interregnum is merely a period of time where a kingdom is without a ruler. So he is preparing them to understand these great truths. Now you will recall that prior to this, believers had been out, been sent out two by two. You read about that in Mark 6. And they were to announce to the, quote, house of Israel that the long-awaited kingdom of heaven was at hand. You can read about this, for example, in Matthew 10, verses 1 through 7. Now, as they return to Christ, he is asking them for a report. And that takes us to verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man was one of the Lord's favorite ways of expressing himself, his favorite self-designation. By the way, that is a title taken directly from Daniel's great prophecy of the Messiah and his future kingdom in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And in verse 14, notice what they say. And they said, some say that you are John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. 
Now, I might add that this is typical of false professors in Satan's church today. They will always define Jesus in ways that is short of deity. You see this all the time in the cults, like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. Then notice verses 15 and following. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And now we're going to see Simon Peter answering on behalf of the rest of them. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Beloved, here is the first and most important pillar of a true church. Number one, it will confess Jesus as Lord. The foundation of the church is the revelation of God through his apostles that indeed you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ in the original language, Christos, means the anointed one. This is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah. Then he says, the son of the living God. This refers to God incarnate that has come to reveal God, redeem men, and rule over God's kingdom. That is who you really are. You will recall that later Thomas would see the risen Christ and declare in John 20, 29, my Lord and my God. And of course, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 6, that God has highly exalted him, referring to the Lord Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. What name is that? The name Lord. Sovereign ruler. The name Satan hates. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In other words, even those who have rejected him will be forcibly compelled to acknowledge that indeed Jesus Christ is the Lord and and master of the universe that he has created. And he will also be the judge of all who have rejected him. Now, my friends, I find it fascinating to see that the first thing Satan denied is the first thing God affirms, that he is Lord. He is the self-existent, the self-dependent, the almighty sovereign who rules with unfettered liberty over his creation. Again, recall Satan's first question in Genesis 3.1. Indeed, has God said, he uses the, the term Elohim, the generic term for God, he would not acknowledge him as Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, Yahweh being God's personal and covenant name that denotes his sovereignty. No, Satan omitted that because he despises that, even though the designation Lord God has been used repeatedly since chapter 2 in Genesis, verse 4, and as I mentioned the last time we were together, it's used over 6,400 times in the Old Testament. By the way, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses Lord, Kyrios, in the original language, to translate Yahweh. This emphasizes the superior position as that of a master of a slave. Now, it's important for you to understand this in light of Old Testament history. So I want to take you back and look at some things that I think will clarify ultimately what is happening here in this text. You will recall that God revealed himself to Moses in the form of an amazing theophany in the burning bush at Mount Horeb, which was called the Mountain of God. We read about this in Exodus 3, verses 1 through 10. And there God called Moses to be the first in a long line of mediatorial rulers in the nation of Israel after his long apprenticeship as a shepherd. The burning fire 
in the tree pointed not only to the chastening that the Israelites were experiencing in the fires of adversity in Egypt, but more importantly, to the consuming fires of retribution that were about to come upon Pharaoh and the Gentile nation. On that occasion, God revealed himself to Moses as I am that I am, Exodus 3.14. In other words, I am the one who is and will be. This is a name that denoted his self-existence, his eternality, and his utter sovereignty over all that exists. He wanted Moses, as well as the Israelites, who had only heard of him through the stories of their ancestors, to know that he is the God who is. He's not a God that is far off. He's not some God of of some distant past, but he is the one who is ever-present, the one who will act on their behalf in fulfillment of his covenant promises. So this personal name of God was designated by the Hebrews as Yahweh. And you'll see it translated capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Old Testament. Many times called the Tetragrammaton, the four letters. And there at that burning bush, we see that God authorized Moses to become the first mediatorial ruler of Israel. We see this affirmed in a number of passages, especially Acts 7.35. He would be the one who would now represent Yahweh to the people. And in this official capacity, Moses became a type of Christ. Christ who would eventually be the perfect embodiment of God's mediatorial ruler in the final phase of the kingdom when that will be established on earth when the Lord returns and pours out his blessings on all the nations of the earth. Now, I want you to think of the amazing parallel between the supernatural preparation for the first kingdom in history under the rulership of Moses and the last kingdom, the future millennial kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first preparation included elements such as an insolent mocking of Yahweh by Pharaoh and the Gentile powers. Pharaoh thought that he was the mighty sovereign. There was an utter hatred of Israel, the covenant people of God. And then we see God pouring out supernatural plagues of judgment. We see the total defeat of the Gentile armies, resulting in the deliverance of God's people and the establishment of the first mediatorial kingdom on earth, the theocracy of ancient Israel. And today we are seeing the beginnings of the second preparation for the coming kingdom. We see, once again, an insolent mocking of Yahweh by the Gentile powers. We see an utter hatred of national ethnic Israel, who today are God's beloved enemy, who he has promised to reconcile unto himself. They are indeed the covenant people of God. And we know, according to Bible prophecy, that just before God's judgment upon the nations that we read about, for example, in Revelation 6 through 18, there will be an infinitely greater miracle than the deliverance that happened in Egypt in those days, and that will be the miracle of God snatching away his bridal church. Then, as in the days of Egypt, Yahweh, the covenant-making, the covenant-keeping, the sovereign God of all things, the God of Israel, will judge the Antichrist and his armies at Armageddon, and he will once again deliver his people Israel. Only this time he will establish his messianic kingdom upon the earth for a thousand years, and this will be the consummating bridge between human history and the eternal state. Folks, do you get the idea that God is serious? about the exaltation of his name, that he is the Lord. Let me give you another example out of the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, we read of the furious judgment that God is going to pour out upon the nations that unite together to destroy Israel. We see all of this happening right before our eyes today. 
And repeatedly in Ezekiel 38 and 39, we read the phrase, Thus says the Lord God. In chapter 38, verse 23, he says, And I shall magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord, Yahweh. And at the conclusion of his supernatural annihilation of the vast forces that will come upon Israel, he says in chapter 39, beginning at the end of verse 7, and they will know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh. They're going to know it one day. He goes on to say, in my holy name, I shall make known in the midst of my people, Israel, and I shall not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it shall be done, declares the Lord God. Now, what's the point of all of this? It's simply this, folks. Satan knows all of this. And he is absolutely apoplectic with rage because of it. From the very beginning, he wanted to be like God. He tried to establish his earthly kingdom at Babel. He is trying right now to establish it in the same region. He's trying to destroy Israel in an effort to halt the fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant. If there's no more Israel, (laughs) there's no more covenant people of God God, for which God will, will reconcile and make a kingdom. He wants to prevent the establishment of the messianic kingdom. Right now, we know that he is preparing the world for the Antichrist, for the false prophet. He is building a political and a religious Babylon described by the prophet Daniel, for example, and in the book of Revelation. In fact, tonight, if you come back, I'm going to speak on that. Yet most Christians live as if he doesn't even exist because their minds have been led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And sadly, many Christians attend churches that never teach these things because Satan doesn't want you to know these things. Dear friends, don't miss this. Satan hates the fact that Jesus is Lord and he will do anything and everything in his power to strip him of that title, especially in your life, in your family, And in your church, he wants to be your master and rule over you through the world systems that God allows him to currently, and I might add temporarily, govern. And that's why he has gone to such great lengths down through redemptive history to destroy Christ, to destroy Israel, to destroy the church. You know, this is the ultimate conspiracy theory, isn't it? But folks, this is a theory, or this is far more than a theory. This is the Word of God. Make no mistake, the kind of church that Satan wants to build and bless will deny the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The bedrock confession upon which Christ will build His church. We know biblically that to submit to the Lordship of Christ is what really validates genuine saving faith. We read, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That's part of the new birth. Now, practically speaking, Satan will, will, will raise up cults and churches that flat out deny the deity and the lordship of Christ. But he will also raise up churches that affirm Jesus as Lord when, in fact, they don't really mean it. You see, Satan doesn't mind you calling him Lord as long as you don't serve him as Lord. This has been true from the very beginning. You recall when God gave the law to Moses to give to the Israelites? The Israelites were absolutely terrified by the spectacle of his glory and his greatness, and they vowed to obey the Lord, fearing that he would consume them with the fire that they saw coming from the mountain. And in Deuteronomy 5, beginning in verse 28, the Lord says to to Moses, I have heard the voice of the words of this people, 
which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. But then he says this, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. See, God knew their weaknesses even as he knows ours. My friends, it is one thing to pledge loyalty to the Lord. It's another thing altogether to fulfill that pledge. Obviously, the Lord knew the nature of their hearts because soon after that, we see that they were so influenced by the polytheistic culture of that day that they went out and built a golden calf. They worshipped it. They gave sacrifices to it, and they called it Yahweh. What did they do? They distorted the character of God, and they rebelled against the word of God. It's always Satan's strategy. Again, Satan doesn't mind you calling him his Lord as long as you don't obey him as Lord. What did Matthew say? I should say the Lord say in Matthew chapter 7. In verse 21, he says, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You know, churches are filled with folks who give lip service to the Lordship of Christ. They will say, yes, indeed, he is the sovereign master of my life. And I am willing to be obedient to him as his loving slave. And yet you look at their lives and there's a great disconnect. But we know that genuine faith will produce genuine obedience. We read in Luke 66, verse 44, that a tree is known by its fruit. You say you're an apple tree, then let's see the apples. For this reason, Jesus asked his lip service disciples in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And the answer is because you're a hypocrite. You're disingenuous. And Satan loves to fill churches with these kinds of people. In fact, we know that one of his great tasks is to, to sow tares amongst the wheat. Jesus described this, for example, in Matthew 13, verse 25. In fact, we know, according to Matthew 7, that most of those who call themselves Christians are not. There are the few and the many. Let me give you an example of how this plays out today. We see this all the time in the modern church marketing movement where there is an emphasis on contextualization of the gospel. Often you will hear people say, we're trying to reach the unchurched. You know, that sounds noble, and I believe in many cases their intentions are sincere, but what this often translates into is let's become like the world in order to win it. There is an underlying attitude that says, you know, the gospel is really not powerful enough on its own, so we've got to do something to make it more powerful. God cannot cannot accomplish his redemptive work apart from our creative methods, and so we need to study uh, the culture and the tastes of the secular world that hates Christ and somehow adapt the message and the very nature of a church to appeal to them. Folks, I would humbly submit you just don't see this emphasis anywhere in the New Testament. Someone has well said, quote, when the church caters to the unchurched, the church will unchurch the church, end quote. I see this all the time. And again, I think most of the time these are well-meaning folks. And many people that will come to these types of churches are tired of dead churches that that they've attended. They're seeking some new and exciting alternative And that's good, that's commendable, but unfortunately, I fear that these kinds of churches are not a biblical alternative. These churches especially appeal to young people because they function kind of like the pop culture youth groups that are so indicative of of churches in, in our day. Groups that have proven to be inept in making real disciples of Christ, but great at, you know, producing a high energy crowd committed to primarily to social relationships, but they really 
don't develop a deep, intimate relationship with the Lord. This is what Thomas Burglar defines as juvenilization, quote, the process by which the religious beliefs, practices, and developmental characteristics of adolescence become accepted as appropriate for Christians of all ages. It begins with the praiseworthy goal of adapting the faith to appeal to the young, but it sometimes ends badly with both young and adults embracing immature versions of faith, end quote. Now, many well-meaning brothers who have bought into these philosophies will claim that this is what Paul did when he spoke to the Athenian philosophers uh, at Mars Hill in Acts 17, 22 through 34. But I would submit that just because Paul used the Athenian ignorance in worshiping an unknown God as an opportunity to introduce the one true God is hardly an example of the kinds of contextualization that we see in most seeker-sensitive churches. Paul even went on in that passage to boldly proclaim the unvarnished truth of the gospel and call them to repentance. But the favorite passage used to justify contextualizing the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 9, 22 and 23, where Paul wrote, I have become all things to all men that I may by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may become a fellow partaker of it. But friends, to say that Paul was somehow advocating some form of gospel light to appeal to sinners or that he was somehow asking the church to employ certain kinds of gimmicks and and entertainment to appeal to spiritual cadavers, stretches the principles of of biblical hermeneutics to, to the breaking point. Paul was calling for personal sacrifice on the part of the evangelist with respect to Christian liberties when witnessing to various cultures. He even said in that text, figuratively, that he had become, quote, a slave to all. You see, he never shaped his message to somehow accommodate anyone. What he did was set aside his his personal preferences, even altered his lifestyle, so that he would not be a stumbling block and offend the vastly different cultural sensitivities of the unbelievers in his day. And we should do that even to this day. I would submit to you if Paul was such a great example of removing the offense of the cross and the gospel to accommodate his listeners and draw bigger crowds to produce a more desirable response, then why was he so persecuted? He was stoned. He was left for dead. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. Eventually he was executed. You see, friends... Paul was no contextualizer. His message and his life never conformed to the culture. It always confronted the culture. He was willing to sacrifice himself to gain an audience of of, of vastly diverse cultures, but he was absolutely unwilling to sacrifice the message. The Apostle Paul was no people pleaser. He wrote in Galatians 1.10, Am I now seeking the favor of men? Or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bond slave of Christ. He said in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 16, I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. You see, he never advocated imitating the world. He did call the church to imitate him because he imitated Christ. First Corinthians 4.16. You see, Satan hates that in the leaders of the church. Because he does not want there to be any focus on the lordship of Christ. He wants leaders that will mirror the world. Because he wants a church that will imitate the world. In 3 John 11 we read, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. John MacArthur says, quote, By all means we are to seek the salvation of the lost. We must be servants to all, deferential to every kind of person. For Jews we should become Jewish. 
For Gentiles, we should be like Gentiles. For children, we should be childlike. And so on, for every facet of humanity. But the primary means of evangelism, we dare not overlook. That is, the straightforward, Christ-centered proclamation of the unadulterated Word of God. Those who trade the Word for amusements or gimmicks will find they have no effective means to reach people with the truth of Christ. Again, what Satan loves to do is build and bless a crowd and then call it a church And then that group of people will look and act like the world. He loves worship services, for example, that appeal to the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life. 1 John 2.16. And all of this, of course, is not from the Father, it's from the world. Again, Christ said that he's going to build his church upon that confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Satan wants to make a mockery of that profession. And so he will build a church that will over-contextualize the message and the nature of the church, causing it to conform to the culture. They will circumvent doctrinal precision. They will criticize Christian purity. And they will ultimately create a religious social club filled with tares and call it a church. For those committed to evangelical pragmatism and some of the more extreme forms of contextualization, I would humbly ask you to consider once again what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 2. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that, as the servant deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You know, if you're going to appeal to the culture by offering some kind of service in which they feel comfortable, then call it an event. But don't call it a worship service. If the offense of the gospel is removed... If, if Christ is not exalted, if his word is not valued and taught in depth, if the word is not the sole source of faith and practice, if you have absolutely no commitment to equipping the saints with doctrinal precision, if you have no passion for the purity of the church as Jesus did, if you refuse to discipline sin as Jesus commanded, then don't call yourself a church. Call yourself a club or, or, or a gathering, maybe even some kind of an evangelistic uh, event, because you are not a church by New Testament standards. A true church gathers to worship and be equipped and be edified and then scatters to evangelize. That's how you reach the unchurch. You equip the saints so they will do the work of the ministry and they go out and spread the gospel. You don't adapt your worship services to accommodate the lost. All that will do is fill a church with tares, and it will dumb down the Word of God to a point where the saints are so malnourished that they become undiscerning children that are tossed here and there by every wave, every wind of false doctrine. And I fear that many true believers in those kind of churches have been so over-contextualized that they end up loving the world more than Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Therefore also we have as our ambition to be pleasing to him. Now in closing, I understand the importance of adapting the form of a church to match a particular culture. But friends, the, the method and the overall methods and nature of a church must remain faithful to Scripture or it's no longer a New Testament church. When the Lord is pleased to bring unsaved people into our worship services, I want them to feel loved, but I don't want them to feel at home. Because I want them to feel the truth. And that is that we are worshiping the very one with whom they are at war. The wrath of God abides upon the one that has come in. And we are worshiping that one. I want people to come into our worship services 
where Jesus is Lord. I want them to hear the preaching of the word and the singing of the saints and be convicted and be saved. This is what Paul described in 1 Corinthians 14, 24. He says that when the word is rightly divided, quote, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Beloved, this is how Christ builds his church. It's based on the lordship of Christ. That's where you begin. This is the very opposite of the way Satan will build his. And if you were part of a church that is like the one that I've described with respect to one that Satan loves to build and bless, then I would humbly submit to you that Satan has taken advantage of you, that you're ignorant of his schemes and you have been banished to an island of spiritual infancy unless you get out of that kind of, a, of an environment. Commit yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Become a part of a church that truly exalts him so that you will grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ and you will find in him your greatest joy and your supreme delight because he is indeed Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these truths. I pray that they have been spoken in love, but also with clarity and with conviction. Lord, we know that we fail as a church in so many ways. But Lord, you know our heart. We love you as our Savior. We obey you as our Lord, even though imperfectly. But Lord, that is the passion of our heart. May you be exalted in our lives, in our families in our church so that a lost and dying world will see Jesus as Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author Dr. David Harrell. For more information or for other messages from Dr. Harrell, please visit the Olive Tree Christian Resources website at otcr.org.